0: Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
1: On today's episode, we'll be looking at one of my favorite memes of the past with a man who literally coined the phrase in the early days of the Let's Talk Bitcoin show. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is sponsored by etoro.com and purse.io. Let's Talk Bitcoin is owned by the hosts and is editorially independent, but you can find new episodes every Sunday on the Coindesk podcast network at coindesk.com, the LTB network at letstalkbitcoin.com, and of course on our privately managed show-only subscriber feed, which is free also, at ltbshow.com. With all of that said, I'd like to welcome you to the Let's Talk Bitcoin show. This is episode 430. My name is Adam B. Levine. I'm a longtime journalist, entrepreneur, and these days I'm also an editor at Coindesk. Joining our discussion today, Dr. Stephanie Murphy. Hi there. Mr. Jonathan Mohan. Hey. <laughs> and special returning guest, although it's been a lot of years, super early investor in the space, David Johnston, now of Yeoman Capital, among other things. Hey everybody. Welcome to the show, David, and welcome to kind of everybody else who's tuning in for our discussion today. So, David, before we get into it, can you kind of provide our listeners, some of whom are new, some of whom are old, with a little bit more about your background and what you've been up to in particular over the last couple of years?
2: Sure. Uh, I grew up as a serial entrepreneur building tech companies in the 2000s. was lucky to hear about Bitcoin in 2012 and was already an economics nerd and so decided to convert my cash into Bitcoin. And that sort of started me on my journey of speaking at Bitcoin conferences, investing in Bitcoin companies, ended up working with Bit Angels back in 2013 to fund a lot of the Early protocols in the space, back in the Mastercoin and early Ethereum days. (laughs) Mastercoin. It's been a long time, but end of 2013, coined the phrase DApps or decentralized applications when I wrote the white paper on the subject. And then, yeah, later on, just been in continuing to invest and support protocols in the space. Now I've got a family office, like you mentioned, Yeoman's Capital, and we've supported 40 different protocols and blockchain projects in a whole variety of use cases. But last couple of years, I've been pretty focused on DeFi and sort of all these new use cases around decentralized finance, whether it's lending or staking. Kind of feels like we're just going back to reinventing banking. People want to provide capital and get a yield, right? Which I guess banks aren't doing anymore. So uh, that's kind of been my big focus lately with Factum and Pegnet and all of the DeFi projects that are out there.
1: So I actually did not realize that you are also involved in DeFi. DeFi is one of those concepts that we really haven't talked about too much on the Let's Talk Bitcoin show. It's kind of been mostly a phenomenon happening on sort of the Ethereum protocol. And in general, I felt like it was so early just with a lot of that technology that we're really seeing kind of almost a repeat of the early days where you have kind of these insular communities. MasterCoin comes to mind there too you know creating tools to use within the use case that they think is really important but which the outside world is like what the heck are you guys even doing you know i mean clearly at this point 7 years later after sort of the mastercoin protocol funded back in 2013 the idea of tokens as a thing that can be created for just about any reason by just about anybody has clearly succeeded at it as a concept but mastercoin now called omni really didn't make that jump in the same way you know it gets a lot of use because of its connection to tether but outside of that I look at DeFi and I wonder, are we seeing the same thing kind of repeat over again?
2: I think this is the year that DeFi really goes mainstream. I mean, you saw more than a billion dollars now is locked up in DeFi contracts, like you said, mostly in the form of Ether. And so I think that's sort of a, a really big milestone. And, you know, I think it's becoming more accessible. The user interfaces are getting a lot easier. And yeah, a lot of it's happening on top of Ethereum, but there's, I think, a critical mass of liquidity pools, user interfaces, wallets, sort of all coming together. I just went up to ETH Denver and uh, it was amazing how many people were focused on that use case there.
3: I want to back up for a second. David, what does DeFi mean to you? Tell us about that. And then it sounded like you were saying... Basically, at this point, we need to like burn it all down and start from the ground up when talking about finance. (laughs) Is that accurate? And why do you think that it's better to just start from the beginning?
2: So it's sort of been this recurring theme. Is industry going to catch up with blockchain technology or is blockchain technology going to sort of overcome and susume industry? And at least in the case of DeFi, which I would define as all the use cases related to finance, whether that's lending and borrowing, a la something like Compound, or something like PegNet, where you have decentralized stablecoins issued by a user with no counterparty, with no intermediary. And these are all examples where you've effectively used a smart contract or an application to remove all the middlemen involved in a traditional process. And so that's really catching on. I mean, if you look at the growth rate in ETH being locked up. I mean, it was a couple hundred million dollars last year. It crossed a billion dollars a few weeks ago. You know, at this kind of growth rate, we're talking about billions of dollars moving into this ecosystem, looking for yield. I mean, the U.S. Treasury just fell below 1%. For the first time, I don't know, ever or in a very, very long time, right? So people are looking for how do they get interest and it's not from bonds and everybody's afraid of a stock market correction. So people are looking for alternatives and these systems are just a lot more efficient because you've removed all those middlemen. So I think that moment that we're entering is where a lot of that sort of enters mainstream consciousness.
4: David, I believe the last time we had you on the show was actually an interview you and I had. Quite a while ago. Years ago. (laughs) Yeah, back in like 2014. And I think it aired in February of 2014, talking about these things called contracts for differences and how decentralized versions of them would kind of be really interesting when used coupled with a blockchain. And it seems kind of prophetic now because you have MakerDAO with the DAI product coming out. And it seems sort of like a feature complete manifestation of that. What are your thoughts on contracts for differences and sort of a follow-up from the conversation that we had so long ago?
2: Yeah, I guess we were only four or five years ahead of the curve in that particular conversation, which is often the case. Long before you can sort of envision what will happen, then it takes a lot of pieces to put it all together. But yeah, I mean, Make or Die is a great example. It's one of the largest DeFi projects out there and you put ETH into a contract and balance that and sort of over-collateralize that as a means of issuing a stablecoin. And so I think this is a really important move because I want to see us move away from reserve-based stablecoins. I see them as sort of the largest single point of failure that has emerged in the ecosystem since the days of Mt. Gox. Having one of these reserve-based stablecoins fail would be an enormous effect. I mean, for trading pairs, look at the volumes of the stable coins and they're immense, right? And it's become a very popular trading pair, but they're under legal pressure in some jurisdictions. They're under regulatory pressure. They've got a couple of people that operate the reserve based stable coins, right? And that just creates a lot of risk. And ultimately, most people don't have access to redeem the capital that's in that reserve. And so, Maybe you trust a large corporation more than some of the current reserve operators. But I think fundamentally, I'd prefer a system where people hold their own keys. And so I think we're going to evolve from these reserve based systems to these collateral based systems. And now with groups like PegNet, you're seeing Oracle based stablecoins that I think is even sort of the third iteration where it removes even some of the complexities or vulnerabilities that you have in collateral-based systems. So that's sort of a long-term trend I see really coming up quickly. And depending if any of the reserve-based systems run into a problem, that may be accelerated.
3: Okay, so it sounds like you're saying that reserve-based stablecoins are a problem because they provide sort of a false sense of security and it's really easy for them to not have the actual reserves that they claim and people are over-reliant on them. What is an Oracle-based stablecoin, and how does that solve the problem?
2: So an Oracle-based stablecoin, I guess PegNet's probably the first example of this, launched last August, and actually has miners reporting Oracle prices for, let's say, the top 20 cryptos, the top 20 fiats, gold and silver. And so you have this neutral third party that's incentivized to provide accurate data, in the form of a distributed or decentralized oracle. And then the stablecoins in the network, as people put their value into the network, they're pegging to those prices. So if the price of gold is $1,500 and you added $1,500 of value to the network, the protocol recognizes that value and gives you credit for that much value in the network. So I think this sort of removes a lot of the risks you have with a reserve-based currency Because there's no central issuer, all of a sudden, everybody can do this on their own. The user is control. So
1: you've got the reserve-based stablecoins on one side, you know, which are things like Tether, right? You've got the market-based stablecoins on another side, which I would say kind of like the early attempts that maybe BitShares had, where with like BitUSD and stuff like that, where there wasn't an explicit peg, there was some collateralization, but mostly it was an expectation that people would basically arbitrage between these various markets to keep the stable coin at a price that everybody could agree on. And now you're basically talking about almost consensus-driven stablecoin
2: pricing, right? Mm, that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And, you know, I think we see this in the financial world is people have contracts and they pick a price reference and within that contract or that system, they all reference that price. And, you know, What you want to avoid is a single point of failure. We saw recently some malicious attacks where people were targeting oracles and going after smart contracts that were reliant on single oracles. So something like PigNet has taken proof of work and miners and used that to massively distribute oracle reporting across the world, across many sources of aggregated data. So yes, I think those systems are only as secure as their oracles, But, I mean, PegNet, for example, has seen a 400x increase in hash rate from 5 million hash per second to, I think it just crossed 2 billion hash per second the other day. So now you have hundreds of thousands of computers securing the network all over the world. And so far, that's given people enough confidence to put $7 million of capital into the system. There are tens of millions of dollars of conversions per day, and they just crossed a quarter billion dollars in total conversions in the system. So, you know, you end up with a lot of advantages where you don't have a lot of the fees, there's no slippage in the system, there's no liquidity limits because it's all within the user's wallet is I think where we want to go.
3: Can we talk about some of the more details about the ways that oracles work to distribute the problem of determining prices and things like that?
2: Sure. So, in this case and also in the case of something like Chainlink, which is popular in the Ethereum community, is you end up with an aggregate price, right? So in the case of PegNet, you have all the miners submitting prices, and first it ranks them all by hash power, the top 50 miners, and then it begins tossing out numbers based on who's furthest from the median price. So you end up with the miner that had the closest price to the median as the next reported price for that block. In the case of PegNet, it's built on Factum and Ethereum, so it's 10 minute. Time intervals. So you effectively end up with this median price that has come to consensus every 10 minutes. So all of the assets, if there's a conversion during that 10 minutes, are then pegged to those prices that were driven towards the median. And because there's a reward for the miners, PEG is the native token of the system, they're all effectively incentivized one, to have a lot of hash power, and two, to provide accurate data. It's a bit of a different system in the case of Chainlink. They're taking nodes that submit prices to the system, and a lot of time it's aggregated from CoinMarketCap or CoinCap.io or other sources, and then it takes a median of all those submitted prices. So it's a different model. Chainlink doesn't use proof-of-work, but there's actually an integration going on right now between PegNet to provide the proof-of-work secured data also to the Chainlink data. So then that would be included in the median as part of that data aggregation. So it's really interesting sort of how all that's maturing.
3: Yeah, that is interesting. It's like they're discovering, they're mining the consensus or something.
2: Yep, for all of those prices. And then effectively, you can go based on that protocol price and you can convert values within the system without any friction, right? There's no order book, there's no counterparty involved. So if you take a million dollars of pegged Ether and want to convert it into a million dollars of pegged BTC, the cost in PegNet, for example, is a tenth of a penny to do that conversion. So you effectively remove all the fees you would have paid to an exchange or an OTC.
1: So what are the downsides about this type of approach? Because I think if there's one thing that we've seen kind of in this space as long as we've been, you know, it's that there's no such thing as a free lunch. And when you do use kind of decentralization or, you know, consensus as a means of determining really anything... I imagine there have got to be some challenges here.
2: Oh, yeah. And again, it's only as secure as the proof of work that the oracles are doing. But it seems to be entering this virtuous cycle, right? Where the hash rate has massively increased, which has given people enough confidence to put millions of dollars of value into the system, which in turn has increased the reward to the miners, which has in turn increased the hash rate. I remember the old days of Bitcoin. People talked about the fact that they would never trust to send $10 million across the Bitcoin rails, but because they're not yet, you know, that much value securing the hash rate. But now you would think nothing of sending, or you see $100 million sent across the wire, no big deal, because you know there's billions of dollars of hash rate that is globally securing that. So the question is, can you bootstrap that same kind of network effect? In the case of PegNet, they're not using SHA-256. It's LXR hash, which is an algorithm for CPUs and it hasn't been used by any other protocol. So the question is, can they build a sort of dominant position within that consensus space?
3: This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is sponsored by eToro. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over a trillion dollars in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with transparent fees. And if you're not ready to trade yet, practice building your portfolio with the eToro virtual trading feature. Best of all, you can connect with 12 million other eToro traders around the world to discuss trading, charts, and all things crypto. Create an account today at etoro.com. That's etor Build your crypto portfolio the smart way. eToro is crypto trading made easy. One more time, that's etor
1: Okay, so I want to go back to a panel that we both attended in 2013 or 2014 that really stuck in my mind. I don't actually remember what conference it was or what year it was. I think I was moderating it and you were one of the members on the panel. And there were two big things that kind of stuck out at me about it. I think it was one of the ones that I did called New Ideas in Bitcoin. One of the things was that there was an NXT community member there representing the NXT community was just sweating an uncomfortable amount the entire time. It was really, really awkward. And kudos to the guy because he was just a community member. But man, that stuck in my mind. And the other thing was a phrase that I don't know if you coined it on the stage or if you'd been thinking about it before, but you called it Johnston's Law. And it basically said anything that can be decentralized will be decentralized. And this has been turned into lots of things, Decentralize all the things. There's been lots of kind of derivative stuff off of that at the time. I feel like with all the years that have passed, I've become a lot more cynical about that concept. At the time, I was kind of already cynical about it. I uh, kind of jokingly had what I called the Levine counterpoint to your law, which was that anything disruptive that can be stopped will be stopped. But I think that it hasn't even gotten to that point yet. So the question that I have for you is, what do you think about Johnston's law all these years later? And are my timeframes just too short? Because I mean, the stuff you're talking about here as far as like the decentralization of stable coins to a consensus-based model. I actually think that's a pretty strong argument in favor of that. But coming into this conversation, I didn't really think that there were many of those at all.
2: So it was Coin Summit. It was 2014. It was San Francisco. Yep. It was you, me, Vitalik, and the next community member. I totally forgot Vitalik was up there. <laughs> <laughs> I still have a picture of it. It was a great conversation. And yes, I set it up on stage. You know, I think... Everything that can be decentralized will be decentralized. And I feel as strongly or more strongly about that today than I did in 2014. I mean, just think about, Adam, how far have we come since that point? You know, Bitcoin was hovering around $1,000, and now it's hovering between nine and $10,000. Ethereum didn't even exist yet, right? Vitalik was that, on that stage talking about what Ethereum would be. And now we have a billion dollars of DeFi contracts that people are earning return on, whether it's from staking or from lending. You've got this huge ecosystem of tools that have now been produced on the blockchain. I mean, for goodness sakes, Factum was used to notarize documents for TikTok that eventually secured their copyright against a suit from Baidu that went all the way to the Chinese Supreme Court where blockchain was verified as a means of proving records. Like, we have come so far in this last six years, and I really said that statement in the context of decades, in the context of this century. Like, we're just going to keep moving up the tech stack. First, we had the transfer of value, right? And that created a foundation for everything else. And then we could do smart contracts, and then we could do immutable data And now you've got all the Web3 stuff with digital identity, right? All of that is being built on blockchain. And then you just keep building on top of that. Like, you couldn't have built PegNet in 2013, right? The pieces didn't exist. You needed digital identity. You needed Factum as a protocol for all the data to live on. You needed Ethereum to create liquidity pools with all of these tools. Like, the sort of aggregate critical mass is there now. and I think back to 2012, you know, Bitcoin was 10 bucks and there were 10 million of them. There were a hundred million dollars of digital assets in the world. And looking at coin market cap right now, there are $261 billion in digital assets. Like we've come a really, really long way. So I'm less and less worried about, quote unquote, it being stopped. And let's use the example of India as the perfect example, right? You know, All of this stuff kept happening despite the crackdown from the central bank in India that stopped exchanges from expanding there. But all of a sudden now, yesterday, the Supreme Court in India reversed the central bank's action, which I think is only the second time ever that they've reversed a central bank action as unconstitutional. And all of a sudden, crypto opens up to 1.3 billion people in India, but because the protocols were neutral... As far as jurisdictions, progress kept happening, and now they can all join the party. But man, we've come a long way. I'm more optimistic than ever.
1: Honestly, I'm glad to hear you say that, because like I said, I feel like I've become a little bit jaded about a lot of these decentralization topics as time has gone on. I think that there are opportunities where we see this sort of thing happening, but especially once I started being on the entrepreneurial side of the equation with the work I did with Tokenly, I just became really kind of demoralized increasingly as I saw this thing from the other perspective. And as so many applications, so many different projects sort of came forward and felt like they were built entirely or almost exclusively for the kind of enthusiast audience, right? And so when I look at DeFi, like, I agree with you, the milestones there, you know, the $1 billion, that's a real number. But at the same time, it's a billion dollars coming off of, you know, a many billion dollar market cap for the Ethereum asset. And, you know, ultimately, we're still kind of just playing with ourselves here, right? Like, perhaps in banking in particular, there is more of an opportunity. And I've had somebody who's been chasing me to interview them about an opportunity in DeFi where basically they're paying for one of the stablecoin deposit programs where basically you can get 10% interest every year on your deposits, right? And to me, I'm like, well, 10% sounds a lot better, but I'm not concerned about The bank's actually failing. Like, it's weird. I used to be a lot more concerned about that. And these days, I'm like, well, it's a lot more likely that a DeFi contract is going to have a flaw in it and someone's going to exploit that. And then my money's gone than I am about, you know, like the entire system failing. It feels like at some point in time, the system probably is going to fail because, I mean, math. But like, I've been trying to predict that now for more than 10 years personally. And I think it's very taxing. I think it's very emotionally draining to just kind of be sitting around waiting for something like that to happen, even with as busy as I've been over that time. So, I mean, like, where do you get your confidence that this actually is anything other than, you know, us just playing with ourselves, to, you know,
2: use a terrible phrase? (laughs) (laughs) I get my confidence because of the internet. So I was the quintessential internet nerd in the 90s long before anybody used the web, and I could see what was going to be built, right? And there were so many websites that were too early. There was something like 100 video streaming sites that were built and failed before YouTube hit mass adoption. And what you needed in 2005 for YouTube to succeed was enough bandwidth. You needed broadband to saturate the market. And there was just enough of that in 2005 that YouTube took off. It didn't mean that all the people that were before that were wrong about video being like the thing on the internet. It just means they were way too early. Some of them were 10 years too early, and some of them were five years too early, and some of them were two years too early. But YouTube was right on time, right? So I think about blockchain in the exact same context. What's too early? a lot of the advanced applications are too early, right?
4: My favorite joint venture in the history of the internet was in 2000, Blockbuster announced a fantastic new <laughs> and exciting <laughs> partnership with Enron to bring streaming video <laughs> over the internet. And soon you'd be able to stream movies online.
3: <laughs> That's where Netflix came from, right? That was the mother and father. And <laughs> Netflix was the baby.
4: Yeah, it's just every single statement in that sentence, but for one, turned out to be right. And I think, Adam, our problem as people who are actively trying to engage in this space on a daily basis is it's hard to see progress and increments in, in days rather than years. And when you're actively in something, you're trying to contribute to the body of water to see it grow. You know, you don't piss in the ocean to make the tide come in. And I feel like a lot of what the (laughs) blockchain entrepreneurs experience is like just adding a couple of pints of water to the ocean and waiting for it to rise. But the tide's coming. It takes a while. But I think to David's point, like we have come way further than I think we would thought in certain metrics. The like getting stuff to actually work bit, I think we're still trying to work on. But if you just pattern map it to the fact that, you know, commercialization and the internet didn't happen until 92. And then when did people actually start buying stuff on the Internet? It was like oh five, oh six. I still think we're on track for that type of trajectory.
3: You know, I mostly agree with you guys. Um, but just to provide a little bit of a devil's advocate to the optimistic position, Adam, like when you were saying that this person who wants you to interview them was offering like 10% interest on deposits... But you're thinking, oh, this is risky, like it's more likely that there's going to be a flaw in some smart contract that makes me lose all my money, you know, and you have to balance the risk with that reward. I was thinking, well, that's why they're offering 10% interest, because they know it's risky and everybody knows it's risky. (laughs) And so I wonder, like, once this all settles out and once DeFi becomes the norm, are we going to end up with basically like what we have now in terms of our options for things like earning interest on a deposit? where it's like a crappy situation from the banks. I mean, I think it would be better just by virtue of the fact that we'll have more options and less centralization and less authority and less need to trust a authority figure. But how do we know that? What if we just end up with crappy options once the risk goes away because the system gets better?
1: And another question that builds off of that, Stephanie, thank you for that. How much of our path to success is even about us versus how much is it about the world at large? Because Bitcoin, like the whole thing has been that it's an alternative that provides unstoppable competition in a monetary sense, in a way that, you know, transcends the idea of nation states that really kind of has the same type of reach that the internet does in a fundamental way. So that's been another question is, you know, like the internet, there was nobody fighting for a monopoly on the pre-internet, right?
3: Um, AT&T? Comp you
1: serve? yeah. Okay, okay. Well, I mean, like you could say the AOLs and stuff like that, none of them had an actual monopoly. They might have had a de facto monopoly because nobody offered an alternative, but nobody actually had a monopoly. And you look at world governments, right? And everybody has a monopoly on currency, nobody larger than the U.S. government. So I can see an argument in favor of, well, we just need to wait for that monopoly to fail. But I mean, is that really the only path that we have? Or is there something that goes beyond
4: that? I like to think about it when it comes to technology. You don't win old wars, you win new wars. and so. People keep saying Linux is going to replace the personal computer. Linux is going to replace the personal computer. My entire life, I have heard that statement, and it's never going to be true. And then it came true, but it didn't come true for the personal computer. An entirely new field of play came about, which was the mobile phone. And then it just entirely won that battle. It was an entirely new field with no legacy or incumbent structures to compete against. And then when you're starting from scratch, Linux was superior. And now it's something like 80, 90% of all smartphones, and probably in perpetuity, are going to be Linux-based. And so when I think about trying to change the world, I like to think about like, where are the new fields of battle where there is no incumbent, and then just try to isolate and contain the old world from leaking out there. Like We successfully combated Windows for becoming a thing on phones. And when we look at the industrially globalization that's occurring and everyone switching to internet-based commerce and post-jurisdictional corporations and financial activities and engagements, I think that like the place that crypto can win is those people. You know, like every time Andreas comes here and tells us how impossible it is for him to even have a bank account as he travels so much, I think as long as we win that field of battle, as long as like, to the extent that we can get the world to use DeFi, And crypto is only in DeFi, and DeFi becomes an ever growing percentage of the commerce of the world in the same way that online payments is only a thing because the internet is now the majority of like commerce. I think that's where we win. I don't think we'll ever kill the dollar. I just think it'll become increasingly less relevant because of how much that's occurring within the container of DeFi.
2: Yes. It's all about sort of winning new users and new use cases. And so, you know, I think that's going to sort of where things get really interesting is where we take these technologies and apply them to these new use cases. And the new use cases are mostly online. So it's like, when will crypto be the dominant form of in-person payments? I don't know if it will be because, you know, there's a lot of infrastructure in, you know, the old way of doing purchases at a store. But when it comes to machine payments, when it comes to online payments, when it comes to social payments, All of that is wide open, and we've radically reduced the cost of doing those transactions. I mean, you do a few transactions a day, you know, I think it's going to be like text messages, right? I mean, there used to be a high cost for that. Now the cost is virtually free, and you don't think anything of sending hundreds of messages a day. I think you're going to have hundreds of transactions a day. They're just going to be all these little actions that you take, and you're going to have payments embedded in all of these behaviors. Like So for example, on March 4th, a couple of days ago, something new happened, which is an app started paying me for my data. So this is Nodal, Nodal Cash, built on Stellar, is paying me micropayments for my data related to IoT devices that my phone sees on my Bluetooth. So for the first time ever, My phone now pays me for my data. Whoa.
4: Don't bring that social credit peer (laughs) narking thing into America, my friend. Listen, they start you little and then it gets bigger and bigger. And then before you know it, you're narking on your neighbors. This is how it starts. (laughs) Let's be real though. All of your apps have already been using all of your
2: data, right? (laughs) I don't know if that's the same thing. (laughs) Right, and so... People should have the ability to say yes or no. And because of GDPR and the California legislation, like the mandate coming down is you have to get consent from users. And I think the natural outflow of that is people are going to demand payment to say yes. Because if I can say no, I value my privacy extremely highly. I use Signal for a lot of my communications because it's open source and encrypted. But do I care if my phone saw an electric scooter Bluetooth signature while I walked past and some advertiser used that to advertise to somebody looking for a scooter? No, I'm willing to sell that data, right? That may be very different things based on what data.
3: That scooter driver should have secured their device.
2: <laughs> That's their fault. If they didn't want to be seen,
3: they should have <laughs> done something about it.
2: Right. But that's a really interesting economy that I think we're going to see emerging. So I know of other groups that are paying graphic designers in the form of giving them graphic design tools, and they're getting in return access to some of their GPU to do crypto mining. So all of a sudden, the graphic designer is getting an expensive piece of graphics tool software like AutoCAD for free and the other side is getting computational power from their underutilized GPU, I just think we're going to open up all these new models where people get paid for their hardware, for their data, and the only way that's going to happen is with the frictionless crypto rails that we have now. That's the machine economy. David, really
1: appreciate your time. This conversation didn't go exactly like I thought it was going to, but uh, always very, very interesting to catch up on you and your projects. Absolutely. Great to be here. So if anybody would like to learn more about you or get in contact, do you have any channels that you actually use publicly these days?
2: Uh, Sure. Easy to follow me on Twitter, D Johnston I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. I post a lot there. Easy to find there as well. As far as projects, pegnet.org, factum.com. And for my family office, it's yeomans, Y-E-O-M-A-N-S.capital, yeomans.capital. And that's a wrap for
1: episode 430 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Thanks for listening. You can find new episodes every Sunday on coindesk.com, letstalkbitcoin.com, and of course, the show's dedicated feed at ltbshow.com. This episode is sponsored by etoro.com and purse.io, with music by Jared Rubens and probably a little bit of my piano again this time too. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at adam at and we'll see you next week.